Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So today we're going to talk about a new report from the AJC that shows that food stamps do not go as far in rural Georgia as they do in more urban places in our state because of higher food prices in rural areas. This report came out amidst changes to the food stamp program that have been proposed by the Trump administration that would kick tens of thousands of people off the program here in Georgia and up to 3 million people nationwide. And then for our second topic today, we talked to Nabila Islam. She is a candidate for Congress in Georgia's 7th Congressional District. We talked to her about some of the financial challenges that she is facing as she launches a bid for office. But with that, let's start with our first topic here. So Maya Prabhu at the AJC has a new feature out that looks at the greater burden food costs place on people living in rural areas who rely on safety net programs to make ends meet. But despite this burden and the fact that policymakers have made a big deal of their interest of investing in rural Georgia in recent years, new rules are currently being considered that would result in many people losing access to nutrition assistance programs like food stamps that would make it even harder, particularly for people living in rural areas, but for vulnerable people across our state to make ends meet. So let's start with what was actually in this new feature. I thought that this was a really excellent report that looked at an important safety net issue What Maya did was she traveled around the state and compared grocery prices on common food items, things like a head of lettuce or hot dogs or or other common grocery items. She compared the price of those items at stores in rural Georgia where there's very little competition, stores that are often in food deserts or places where accessing healthy food can be a challenge, and compared that to the prices of food at urban grocery stores and places where there was a lot of competition. And she found that on average, a a simple basket of goods could cost as much as $10 more per grocery trip for people buying common things in the grocery store. How this ties in with the debate of our food stamps is food stamps is a relatively limited benefit for people who otherwise have very low incomes um, who have trouble making enough money to consistently put food on the table. And combined with the fact that they have low incomes is that they face these higher prices. Luke, what was your reaction to this story, to the predicament that people in rural Georgia face with higher grocery prices? I mean, it's really not that surprising. Just a supply and demand kind of situation would indicate that's probably true, that, you know, it's harder to get to rural Georgia. It's harder to uh, supply stores in there. There's less of a uh, market for businesses there. And so, you know, there's diminishing returns and getting your uh, items to market in rural Georgia. And since, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, how uh, the Georgia legislature has talked a lot about how rural Georgia is struggling in various ways and there's steps that they should take to improve the lives down there and the fact that they have consistently failed to do that. I'm just not really shocked that there is another item on the list of things that make life in rural Georgia hard. Um, And 
since I now live in rural Georgia and I'm from uh, South Georgia, though, on the coast, so there's kind of an asterisk on being rural there, even though I kind of am, kind of wasn't. Um, I noticed price differences. Uh, they weren't astronomically different, but uh, they definitely are different. And just the uh, quality and quantity of food access is significantly different um, in the different communities in Georgia that I've lived in. So uh, this is not shocking to me uh, at all. So despite these challenges, it will probably not surprise you to hear that the Trump administration has been considering rules that would weaken the food stamp program, that would make it more difficult for people to qualify for food stamps. They're doing this through regulatory changes that the administration can do unilaterally because in the 2018 Farm Bill, the legislation that authorizes the food stamp program, there was an effort to put into law changes that would make it harder for people to access food stamps, but those were roundly rejected by a bipartisan group of lawmakers who did not want to make changes to that program. It is partially driven by the fact that the Farm Bill marries two distinct interests where Republicans have a strong feeling on things like subsidies for farmers in the Midwest, and Democrats have a strong interest on issues like food stamps, which are also partially driven by the fact that people who use food stamps consume a lot of items produced by American farmers. Um, So that political coalition has generally protected the food stamp program from legislative onslaughts in Washington. But what it cannot protect people from is regulatory changes that would weaken the program unilaterally. Changes that have been proposed recently by the Trump administration are estimated to kick 3.7 million people off of food stamps once they go fully into effect. And the rule would also cause nearly a million children to lose access to free and reduced price meals at schools. That's because eligibility for the school lunch program or the school breakfast program is often tied to whether or not a child comes from a family who is already receiving food stamps. Um, And even in some communities where a high percentage of the students in schools are receiving food stamps, the school can apply for a program that's known as community eligibility that just provides free breakfast, free lunch for all of the children at that school kind of simplifies it on the administrative back end. Um, It is unsurprising that the Trump administration is considering rules that would weaken this program, despite the fact that the agency considering the rules, the USDA, is headed by Sonny Perdue, former governor of Georgia, who is the Secretary of Agriculture in Washington. Luke, I hate to go right to the politics of this. I mean, there is a real story of human suffering here when programs people rely on are gutted and taken away so that people cannot put food on the table. But whether these programs will remain as they are is largely driven by politics. Is there a political cost for Republicans who would support gutting food stamps and making it harder for vulnerable people to eat? It's really hard to tell, to to be honest. I mean, there's a lot of people who would argue that Trump voters voted for him out of concerns for economic anxiety. I'm sure those people exist. Uh, I'm convinced that there are far more people voting for Republican candidates due to cultural reasons and due to that. You know, that's just what what you do in uh, those communities. And I think the 
lines that have to be connected by everyday people who are on food stamps who are working, you know, uh, or have health issues that cause them to have lower incomes. I don't know if they're going to make the connection, to be honest. You know, they're not watching the TV or reading Washington Post or, you know, uh, I hope they're listening to Peach Pod, but I don't think they are. Um, You are, if you're hearing this (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so kind of ironic in in that. But, um, yeah, like, I I just don't think they're, I don't think they'll know, you know, and it it takes a while to permeate through the system and people, like, realize, like, oh, this is why this thing happened, you know. I think it's, you know, a good example in my mind is always like pointing back to the people who are like Obamacare. I hate that shit, but I like that affordable care act. You know, it's just like, it's, it's difficult for people to understand like who is making these decisions and how are they affecting you? Um, Pain will be very real. And I think in the sense that, you know, the ultimate, you know, campaign question of it's like, are you better off than you were four years ago? I think this might be on the list of things that someone considers and be like, well, I'm really not better off than I was four years ago. In fact, in fact, I'm worse off. Um, I think, you know, in that way, it could contribute to some political pain for Republicans. But, you know, it's been a, a long, long, long time since the Republican Party had taken really aggressive steps to help poor people it's happened in the past the republican party's had a long history uh you know since the 1850s uh so it's been a long long party um but it's been an even longer time i think uh since republicans have gone out of their way to actually do something to help the poorest people in america and it hasn't really changed their uh voting coalition and in fact more often than not the Folks who have lower incomes and don't have as much education have been starting to vote for the Republican Party more and more. So I I don't feel like this one change alone is going to really affect their coalition. Um, but on the margins, it, it very well might uh, sway some people. So Prabhu's piece, and, and we'll link to it in show notes, it was a very good examination of this issue. Uh, her piece notes that lawmakers from both sides of the aisle balk at discussing increasing food stamp benefits, making this program better, not just keeping it status quo, not making it worse, but making it actually better. Should Democrats be running on a more aggressive policy to combat, to combat hunger in the U.S.? Uh, they should be, and I'm still shocked that Democrats have not uh, been as aggressive as they should be on talking about the issues of rural Georgia because, you know, I'm biased because I've lived in Georgia all my life and I've known Georgians of every political persuasion and uh, the, you know, actual swing voters in Georgia. I mean, people in this state are not nearly as partisan and die hard of either party as being a quote unquote red state would suggest. And I think if there was a Democrat who really went down to that part of the state consistently and aggressively campaigned and aggressively messaged to those voters, they're not going to win all of them. They're not going to win most of them, but there's plenty of them that I think would be swayed or at least receptive to the argument and, you know, encourage people to at least not be as aggressive in their opposition to Democrat candidates. Uh, And, 
I, I think that's a real lost opportunity uh, because the issues of hunger and poverty in rural Georgia and the stagnation that a lot of people see in those communities is a real thing. And the Republican Party has not offered any alternatives for a really long time on that. And I think that's becoming clearer and clearer each year when they, you know, talk a lot about, oh, we need to do something about rural Georgia. Rural Georgia is really in big trouble. And then just consistently every single time they don't do it. And, uh, you know, eventually I think it's up for a Democrat to, you know, say, hey, you guys going to put up or shut up because I'm here and I'm ready to do something about uh, the issues that rural Georgia faces. And, you know, it's time that you as the Republican Party who claims that you are supporting those voters that you do something. Um, and I, I just don't understand why there hasn't been a Democrat to lay that out yet. But uh, maybe, maybe they're listening to this podcast and they will after this election. Well, in the presidential field, Julian Castro has been somebody who has shined a light on these issues. I think his absence from the December debate, if he ultimately is not a part of that stage, is going to be missed for the fact that he consistently in this campaign has highlighted issues that impact the most vulnerable people in our country. He recently put out a plan that would make school meals free at all schools across the U.S. and would bolster the food stamp program as it exists today. Um, And he was relatively critical of the lack of focus on lower income people who have largely been forsaken for all of this discussion of the middle class, the middle class white voter from the Midwest who voted for Obama in 2008 and maybe 2012 and voted for Trump in 2016. He has driven that message, I think, more than any other candidate in the presidential field. But yeah, you really have not seen that message as much among Democrats in Georgia. I think I think you can kind of get at it to varying degrees from candidates who are appealing to different constituencies, whether they're talking about labor and, and the issues that uh, workers face or whether they're talking about health care and high costs for people, costs that bankrupt families. But nobody sort of lays out a broad anti-poverty message the way that Castro has on the presidential level or the way that somebody like John Edwards did so explicitly in, in 2004 Um, And so, yeah, I definitely agree. I think that that is lacking. I think one final point on this before we let this issue go is that part of what has been considered in changes that would undermine the food stamp program, similar policies are being considered in the healthcare waivers that we discussed before. Central to this is the idea that people should not be getting public benefits that help them make ends meet if they are not also working. And what is misconstrued in that notion is that most people who are getting these benefits already are working. But this is a burden that falls particularly hard on people of color. And it falls particularly hard, given that all of the cross currents of economic instability in rural Georgia kind of intersect with one another and starts this downward spiral that makes it difficult to get out of. People who have lower incomes are more likely to be food secure, and people living in rural Georgia are more likely to have lower incomes. Food food insecurity is also associated with health problems like obesity or diabetes or hypertension, and lack of access to health coverage and fewer health facilities in Georgia means that people can't get these conditions treated once they get them because they generally have poor health because they are food insecure. 
all of this makes it harder to work. So then if you put work as a barrier to accessing programs that would help you move up the income ladder, that would help you be economically self-sufficient, then you're basically putting a cap on people's ability to do that at all because all of the other economic problems that Georgia has, the higher food prices, the lack of access to health care, make these problems worse. And so none of this, you know, you often hear these restrictions being proposed as a way to be fiscally responsible or, or ensure that people, that only deserving people are the ones who get help from these programs. None of this really is a plan to actually put people back on their feet. It is a way to prohibit them from getting to that point. Um, and I think that this is particularly burdensome on people of color who face discrimination in the job market. So when you then condition access to these programs on working, you're also interacting that with that problem of discrimination in the job market. Um, so I didn't want to let that go without acknowledging that. I think that all of this works together in a way that that demonstrates why income inequality is so bad in this country and why it is so difficult when you are poor, particularly when you are poor and African-American or Hispanic, that it is really difficult to overcome those problems um, and make a better life for yourself. All right, and with that, let's move on to my conversation with Nabila Islam, a candidate for Congress. All right, making a return visit to the podcast is Nabila Islam, a Democratic candidate for Congress in Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Nabila, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me back. Um, So there's been a lot going on since the last time we talked. And one of the pieces of news that I noticed in the last couple of weeks is that you recently talked with NBC's Jonathan Allen, who wrote a piece that compared you to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a progressive young woman of color who recently recently upset an establishment favorite and in a heavily Democratic district in Congress. So first off, I'm just curious about how that comparison lands for you. What about AOC's experience resonates with you or inspired your run? And what about your own experience does that comparison to AOC miss? So, um, you know, I think it was such an honor to be compared to Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. You know, she's been such a voice for her community and this country. Uh, with that being said, I, I'm my own person and, you know, I'm running to be, you know, the next Nabila Islam for my community, the next congresswoman for my community. And, you know, we have uh, different experiences, but I think we've both been fighting for our communities just the same. I have been, you know, working in uh, democratic politics for about the last uh, 10 years or so. And I know I've worked on several different campaigns and democratic institutions. And I, I feel like what I have learned in my experiences working in the South is that too often communities like mine are footnotes when it comes to the overall democratic strategy uh, that too oftentimes candidates uh, run as Republican white candidates because we think that in districts like mine, we need Republican votes to win, uh, which, which is incorrect. Uh, we have the votes here. Uh, we just need to expand the electorate um, and inspire people to come out and vote and motivate them. So, yeah, I want to dive in a little bit here on on your own 
experience. Um, something that I actually, or that struck me as a contrast a little bit was that you're a veteran of Democratic campaigns. You've campaigned for some relatively moderate candidates in the past, some progressive candidates in the past. But people from Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's wing of the party, I think the most prominent person here might be Senator Bernie Sanders. They've had a more adversarial relationship with the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders has uh, has been a senator from Vermont for a long time, but he has been an independent senator that caucuses with the Democrats. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez sort of got into politics working for the Sanders campaign and, and mounted this sort of insurgent bid against an establishment favorite. You've sort of taken the inside track in terms of the work that you've done. Are there any lessons that you draw from working sort of within the party structure that maybe would help you be better prepared to get progressive priorities enacted in Congress? Sure. No, I I feel like what I just mentioned in terms of, you know, working in democratic politics, what we need to do is expand the electorate and get communities of color um, inspired and motivated to come out and vote. And what I've seen too often times is that we're too afraid to be bold when it comes to policies that are going to effectuate real change in our communities, like Medicare for all, like you know, advocating for a living wage starting at $15 an hour. So I feel like overall, we need to continue the dialogue and inspire people and give them, show them that we're fighting for them. So another thing that stood out in this article was you've been pretty open in the press about your personal financial challenges that running for office has presented for you. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience running for office and the challenges that you faced with your own finances, your own health insurance, things like that? So running for Congress is is very cost prohibitive. Um, it's a privilege to run in the first place. Forty uh, percent of Congress today are uh, millionaires. I, I am not one. And uh, when I first started this endeavor back in February, I figured that I'd eventually get a part-time job to help me with my living expenses. Uh, but I, what I realized about a month ago is that in order to give my district the attention that it deserves, that I, I really need to run full-time. So I've made some fiscal adjustments um, in order to run for Congress. And I put my student loans into forbearance, which means that uh, I am accruing interest on my loans, which will capitalize at the end of my forbearance period. And uh, I've also decided to cancel my health insurance, which is pretty much junk health insurance in the first place. It wasn't really covering uh, much. If I were to go canvassing and was, God forbid, hit by a car or a branch or, or something happened to me, it wouldn't cover my ambulance or my um, or hospitalization fees. So I would have had to pay those costs out of pocket anyway. So I just felt like I was paying into an abyss. And so I've made these adjustments to my budget in order to run full time and in order to afford to run for Congress in the first place. So let's build off that a little bit here. What is your view, starting with student loans here, what is your view about what Congress should do about student loan debt? There's been a lot of loan forgiveness programs and proposals put out there in the presidential campaign. Do you back some sort of a student debt forgiveness program? And if so, what kind of scope should that program have? So I'm advocating for overall uh, reaching, uh, you know, canceling student debt overall. And Look, we have about 40 million Americans that owe cumulatively about $1.6 trillion in student debt. And uh, that's delaying our generation from buying homes, from starting families. Um, it's been very crippling to our generation. 
And so I believe that if we were to cancel that debt, uh, we would start to see spikes in our economy that we haven't seen. And that in order to prevent from this happening again, I'm advocating for a tuition-free college as well. So this has actually been a point of debate in, in the presidential campaign, particularly from candidates who who reside on the far left of the party who have been advocating for the benefit of universal programs, your proposal for Medicare for all, and what it sounds like the way you describe your, your student debt forgiveness proposal. These are both programs that people that there aren't really like income qualifications for their programs that are available to anyone within the U.S. Do you think that there is some inherent value to a universal program over, say, a means-tested program that has income eligibility cutoffs? I think that we should offer a free public college to everyone. It should be a universal program. You know, I have seen as of late people talking about how, you know, free public college, the kids of millionaires shouldn't uh, benefit from such a, a program. Uh, I, I disagree. They, if if they want to go to public college, they should have the opportunity to do so um, for free. But uh, from what I've seen, that most of the times these kids oftentimes go to uh, elite colleges where you know they paid tuition to go there. So I feel like overall, universal programs would be beneficial and would cover people that want to attend college. If we can afford to do it K through 12, we can afford to do it K through 16. And, and transitioning to healthcare here, you noted you noted that your own insurance was so skimpy that it was barely worth having. Recently, the Trump administration has gutted consumer protections in the Affordable Care Act, and and the moves by the Trump administration have made it easier for consumers to be lured into non comprehensive health insurance plans. Um, I know your ideal here is Medicare for all, but in the interim, while that legislation is being debated, do you think that there is something Congress needs to do about consumer protections and private health insurance, or is the mission from day one Congress should be debating a Medicare for all bill? So, you know, yes, I am advocating for Medicare for all. You know, no one should be denied health care coverage because they can't afford to go see a doctor. In the meantime, you know, Congress should pass laws that prohibit um, entrance plans that don't offer, uh, you know, real coverage. And that's something that I think that Congress needs to do. And we need to be fighting for we need to be fighting for people, not corporations, not health insurance companies. Um, So on today's show, in our next segment, we're discussing regulatory proposals from the Trump administration that have made nutrition assistance programs like SNAP or the food stamp program harder to access. What should Congress do to address hunger in the U.S.? And would you prioritize undoing the damage that the Trump administration's proposals have done to access to basic nutrition assistance? I think what Sonny Sonny Perdue is doing is, what what he's attempting to do is atrocious. Um, He is going after uh, lower-income families. You know, Georgia itself ranks seventh in the nation when it comes to food insecurity. Uh, About what I saw, about 16% of households in our state struggle to afford nutritious food. And um, I was actually a recipient of SNAP uh, when I was a little kid. Uh, I got three and reduced lunches. Uh, and, you know, breakfast and lunch were very important meals during the day while I went to school. And I think it's really cruel that we're coming after people, the people that are going to be truly affected by this are children. You know, children don't have um, control of their parents' finances. And, you know, the reason that they're doing this is because they're trying to save money, right? 
Um, what's disheartening to me is that we're coming after poor people instead of uh, going after the billions of dollars that we spend in subsidies uh, for corporations. What we need to be going after is corporate welfare. And what I think Congress needs to do is to use its budgeting, budgeting powers to uh, expand SNAP and, um, and help expand the number of people uh, who would benefit from food stamps. And, you know, it just goes to show you that this is right in line with Donald Trump and the GOP's agenda of their war on the poor. Um, and then lastly here, we uh, the last time we spoke was before most of the action has taken place on the impeachment inquiry in the House. Um, as you probably know, the impeachment inquiry was basically kicked off by this revelation that President Trump was trying to pressure Ukraine into launching investigations into his political rivals to the benefit of his political prospects in the 2020 election. Today, the House Intelligence Committee released a report that concludes that the president used the powers of his office to solicit these investigations to uh, to seek public to seek political benefit on his behalf in 2020. And it lays out the evidence that was gathered through this impeachment inquiry. Um, I'm curious, just your view as an observer, as somebody who's thinking about the role Congress has in oversight of the president, how has your thinking on impeachment changed or evolved as these new revelations have been developing? So Kyle, when we first spoke on the Peach Pod back in May, I was for impeachment. That still has not changed. Um, you know, the impeachment inquiry came out and said that they found that President Trump personally and acting through agents within and outside of U.S. government solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, to benefit his reelection. Um, and you know, it's just been made overwhelmingly clear that Donald Trump only cares about himself and will go to no to will go to extreme measures in order to protect himself and to benefit himself. This man is clearly an enemy of our democracy and to our United States Constitution, and we need to cleanse the Oval Office by impeaching him and removing him from office now. Um, And just to wrap here, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to touch on before we go today? So for anyone that's listening to this, I encourage you to run for office. Um, Look, we need more economic diversity in Congress. Uh, we need more women of color, more people of color running for office. If we truly want to see real change in our country, we need a um, we need a we need leadership that looks like America. So um, I just wanted to say, you know, if, if, if you've been contemplating it, please go run for office. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are also running for office. You are a Democratic candidate for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. If people want to learn more about your campaign, could you remind us about how they can do that? Sure. They can go to my website. It's Nabila, N-A-B-I-L-A-H, for Congress, F-O-R, Congress.com. And I also have a Twitter. It's Nabila. Four G A zero seven, and that's the same for my Instagram as well. All right, well, Nabila, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me again. So I think we're going to end it there for this week. We will be back again next week uh, with more coverage of Georgia politics. Luke, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Go dogs! That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.